How are you? It's good to see you again. That was, that Riley's announcement was one of the best. It's going to go down in my memory. Yeah, you can ask, if, if, is there any way pe- people could serve? You could ask if you're allowed. I might say no. <laughs> you could probably pay at the FPOS machine. Probably not, I'm not sure. That's just great. I love this. This guy's got a future, there's no doubt. <laughs> well, thank you so much for praying for me while I was away in the Philippines. It was an amazing time. In seven days, I spoke 10 times. I've never spoken 10 times in a week in my life. I've never spoken three times in a week in my life. 10 times was rather a lot. I did six messages as a part of the pastor's conference, two messages in the church. I ended up preaching at a wedding, and then I preached at a, a, at a blessing for a business that had just started as well for one of the members. I got told that about two minutes before I was on. So, oh yes, if you could just bring the message. <laughs> when? Now, <laughs> I'm reading it as I get up, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say. But it was an amazing time. The Filipinos are some of the warmest people. Exactly. They're just like you guys. So I was not shocked by what I found, because you are some of the warmest people I know, and your countrymen are just the same. There is now, at the end of the conference, I, we described who Sovereign Grace are. We went through our seven values. Um, I then just preached and preached and preached on the importance and centrality of the cross. And we just left it with people. Look, if your church wants to pursue being a part of Sovereign Grace Churches, then let us know and talk to us and we'll start to build with you over the next year and train you more about who we are and start to build you together as a group. Well, at the end of that, 22 churches have said they want to pursue Sovereign Grace, which is pretty amazing. So I don't know how we're going to do that. Because they're just coming from everywhere. The amount of independent churches and men and small pastoral teams that are serving alone with no one helping them. Um, And to see God drawing these men together um, and just their love for the gospel. You know, they're singing the same songs that we are, which always amazes me. When, When songs, when Silver and Grey songs are sung around the world, it always amazes me. And yet you go there and they are singing the same songs with the same passion, loving the same saviour, gathered around the same values. It's just a pure delight. And, and I think for us as a church, and we're well positioned to be able to help them and, and aid them and look after them. Because I've said before many, many times, we are rich, we are rich, we are rich. You go to the Philippines, you realise we are stinking rich. You know, they are reaching out to people. At one point, I, we were going to um, the conference and... And we drive past this street, and there's a lady in the street, probably about 23 years old. She's got a two-year-old and a baby that she's trying to get to sleep on the pavement on a cardboard box. And you realize this is their world. This is the people that they're reaching out to. These are the people that they're seeking to care for. And so we have the privilege, um, through me and also I think for you guys individually over the years, to care for these folk, to love these folk, and help build the gospel into their lives. Amen? So continue to pray for us in that. Do not panic. I'm not going to be away every second week trying to work it all out. And part of my job is to lead the region, so I'll be getting more people from the United States as well over to help them. But I obviously will have to go sometimes, and I will go and represent you as best I can and represent Jesus as best I can. Well, listen, next week we are going to be studying Easter together, and we're going to be doing two of the cries of Calvary. And so this week, we're meant to be going back into Mark. However, 
I really felt the Lord lay on my heart John chapter 19 and the cry of compassion. So please turn there in your Bibles. See, next week, next Friday, we're going to be looking at the cry of anguish. What did it mean for Jesus to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then on the Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be looking at it is finished. And I'm going to have the privilege of preaching on the cry of victory. But to prepare us for Easter and to prepare our hearts as a local church for what Easter is all about, today I want us to look at the cry of compassion. And we are on holy ground as we gather around Calvary. Will we stand next to the dying Jesus? Our hearts will be changed. John Stott talks about how we, as we get near the cross, we allow the sparks of the cross to fall on us. And so that's what I want us to do for two weeks. I want us to get near the cross and be affected afresh by all that he's done for us. So let's read John chapter 19. And we're going to read from verse 23 to the end of verse 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what a privilege we have to gather around Calvary this morning. What a privilege we have having sung about how amazing your grace is to now see it. And Lord, would you help us as believers and unbelievers alike not to look away? Would you help us, Lord, no matter how uncomfortable it is at times, to keep looking at you? And would it affect our hearts, Lord? Would we all be affected at the very core of who we are as we realize that these words not only mattered then, but they matter now as well? Help us, Lord. Amen. You know, there are some articles in newspapers or on Facebook or in magazines or wherever it is that really affect you, aren't they? One such article that I noticed in November 2005 in the local paper in the UK was an article called Joe the Hero, and it affected me. This is the article. It emerged yesterday that pothole victim Joe Lister died saving the lives of his classmates. School friend Lee Murphy said the 14-year-old hero let other children go before him 
to escape the rising waters, only to find himself trapped underground. He said, It seems they had to swim to get out the other side. I've heard there were only a couple of them left, and Joel told them to go first. The girl in front of Joe said she could feel him pushing her from behind as she went through. Joe was among 11 pupils exploring a cave network at Abernidadale, North Yorkshire, on Monday, accompanied by a teacher and a guide. He was discovered missing after a head count. It is not known if the count took place above or below ground, but Joe was eventually recovered unconscious and died in hospital. Everyone in the school is said to be in total shock. Teachers and pupils are simply stunned and upset by what has taken place. It is believed now that the cave system may have been hit by a flash flood after water thundered over the walls of nearby Scarhouse Reservoir into the River Nid. The river, which rose by up to four foot an hour on the day of the tragedy, flows only yards from the five-foot entrance to the caves. Fencing worker William Standeven said normally a child can paddle in the river at the base of the reservoir, but on Monday the waters were raging. Yesterday, Joe's classmates at Tadcaster Grammar School changed their blue and white ties for morning black ties. Shocked head teacher Jeff Mitchell has described young Joe as an absolute delight. Grieving grandfather Bill Lister said none of us know how this could have happened. Joe was such a strong swimmer. And Joe's parents, Martin and Paula of Steeton, simply said this, all we feel is total devastation. You know, as a parent, I can barely even imagine that. What would it be like to send your son off to school? He's on a school trip. And then the school contact you to say there's been a tragic accident and he's died. He's never coming home. And then you hear the story of why he's not coming home. And you can understand why the parents would say all we feel is total devastation, but it's hard to imagine what that would actually feel like if you were the parent. And yet one parent who could totally imagine, or one parent who could totally relate, was Jesus' mum, Mary. He, before she even saw her son on this day in John chapter 19, he'd already been through so much, hadn't he? Her boy, her son, Jesus, had been whipped. He'd been scourged. They would make a whip and they would put bone in it and metal in it. And then they would tie the victim, in this case Jesus, to a pole. And they would take the whip and they would lash it across his naked back. Literally tearing pieces of flesh away all the time. A whole battalion of soldiers then gathered around Jesus and started to beat him around his face and around his head. A crown of thorns then with one to two inch thorns was rammed into his head. Literally going through the flesh and indeed the bone as well, pressing deeply into his skull. And on the way to Golgotha, Jesus was so exhausted, so overwhelmed by all that is taking place. He fell down as he sought to carry his own wooden cross and collapsed until he could carry it no more. 
And so by the time Mary saw him, his mum, that day, Jesus was a beaten and bloodied mess. John Stott says it this way about what Jesus suffered. He said, when they reached the site of the crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross and six-inch nails were driven into his forearms, just above the wrist. His knees were twisted sideways so that the ankles could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. He was lifted up on the cross, which was then dropped into a socket in the ground. There he was left to hang in intense heat and unbearable thirst, exposed to the mockery and ridicule of the crowd. He hung in unthinkable pain for six hours while his life slowly drained away. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. And there in the crowd was his mum. Very aware of all that is going along around Sida. She stands there with Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, her sister, and indeed John, the beloved disciple. And she would have no doubt been very aware of all the mockery of the crowd aimed at her son and the intense pain and anguish that her son is presently enduring. And she's his mum. You know, one of the worst experiences of my life, which I've talked about before, is when I used to have to go through a series of operations with our son Josh. When Josh was born, he was born with a submucous cleft palate. So what that means is the muscles in his mouth rang the wrong way. He, he couldn't speak at all. He was also born with only one kidney that worked properly and two holes in his heart. And so he had to have a series of operations, all that happened before we moved to Australia. But as his dad, I still remember them as if they were yesterday. And I'll never forget when he was four years old and we took him for his first operation. And for whatever reason, I had to go into the operating theater with him. And they asked me to hold this four-year-old boy flat so that they could get the gas into him to put him to sleep. And I will never forget the look in my son's eyes that day as he was afraid and scared and looking at me as if to say, Dad, what are you doing? Yet I was helping him. I was seeking to aid him so that he could get well. Never forget walking through those operations with my first son, Joshua. But that is nothing, nothing compared with what Mary is going through this day as she looks on at her son. And you could understand it if ever there was a moment in time where you could understand Jesus as the Savior thinking about himself, then surely this would be it. If ever there was a time in history when you could understand him ignoring everybody around him, as he suffers not only the intense physical pain of what he's going through, but the spiritual pain of having his Father in heaven turn his face away and then pour his righteous wrath out on him. If there's ever a moment in history you could understand Jesus thinking about himself, then surely this is it. And yet incredibly, even now, he's not thinking about himself. 
Even now, his gaze is selfless towards others. And so the soldiers and the crowds around, he's his father. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He's still caring for the very people that are mocking him, even now. He wants to care for them. Lord, forgive them. To the thief who deserved to be there, who deserved to be in this culture, in this punishment at this time, deserved to be on the cross. This thief reaches out to Jesus and Jesus says, Hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. As this thief puts his faith in him as his Lord and Savior. He says, Listen, it's okay. I've got you. And then in great compassion, he turns to his mum and his beloved disciple. And he wants to share some words with them as well. Some words of compassion that would have no doubt lived with them for the rest of their lives. Some words that should affect us as well as we realize these words echo in eternity. They affect you and I 2,000 years on. These aren't just historical words, but they're words that still impact our lives today. So I have two points that I want to draw your attention to from this cry. And then I want us to look at how does it affect us today then. Point one then, the Savior's compassion for his mother. The Savior's compassion for his mum. See, imagine the story. See, I've taken you to the end, which is when his mum is looking at Jesus. But take that back to the beginning with Mary's life. When she's 13 years old, she's with this guy that she's betrothed to, And the next thing you know, this massive angel Gabriel rocks up at her house and tells her, you're going to have a baby. Imagine how shocked you would be as a young girl of 13 years old, thinking I'm going to have a baby? I've never slept with a guy. How can I have a baby? It's not possible for me. And the angel says, listen, not only are you going to have a baby, you're going to give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. Imagine how overwhelming that news would have been to understand she was just a human being, a normal person like you and I. And she's told such massive news. And nine months on from that moment, that's exactly what happens. In Bethlehem, a place where they were born themselves, she gives birth and incredible things happen. Angels are seen singing praises to God and pointing to the reality that the Son of God, the Christ, has come. Shepherds, who are these big, rugged guys who don't get scared of anything, are falling to their knees afraid because angels are declaring something that they've never heard before. And they've got to find Jesus, and they find this baby, and they kneel down and worship him, realizing this is the Son of God. And then wise men start to rock up from different lands and nations, and they all start paying homage to the true king the one the whole world has been waiting for. And this 13-year-old mother is looking on and storing all these things up in her heart. Amazed. How, How can this be? How can this be possible? And imagine then the joy and the privilege of what it would have been for Mary to experience so many special moments with Jesus. She would have been there when Jesus first crawled. She would have been there when the Savior of the world first walked. She would have heard him laugh. She would have heard him talk. 
she no doubt would have been the recipient of his first piece of artwork and done what every other mother does. Goes, oh, thank you very much. It probably wouldn't have been that great. She would have been there to receive his first piece of carpentry as his dad, Joseph, trained him in what it is to be a carpenter. And he runs into the house and says, Mom, look. She would have experienced all those things. She would have been there at each of his birthday parties to lead the singing and the joys of the celebration and singing happy birthday to her boy. She would have been there to read him stories, tuck him into bed, and as the years go on, talk late into the night with her son. What a great privilege it would have been for Mary to walk with Jesus and to train her son But with that great privilege also came great sorrow. When Jesus was born, both Mary and Joseph took young Jesus, baby Jesus, to the temple to be dedicated. And at that point, we read in Luke chapter 2 that the aged priest, young Simeon, did two things. He rejoiced. He rejoiced that he had truly now seen the Son of God. As soon as he took hold of Jesus, he realized, this is him. This is the one the whole world has been waiting for. At the same time of rejoicing, he predicted that this child will suffer. And he also, looking at Mary, said, Mary, a sword will surely pass through your heart also. And over the next many years of Jesus' life, that's exactly what happens. As Mary looks on and sees suffering. Arthur W. Pink says it this way. He says, what sorrow must have caused Mary... When because there was no room in the inn, she had to lay her newly born baby in the manger. What anguish must have been hers when she learned of Herod's purpose to destroy her infant's life. What trouble was given her when she was forced on his account to flee into a foreign country and sojourn for several years in the land of Egypt. What piercings of soul must have been hers when she saw her son despised and rejected by men. What grief must have wrung her heart as she beheld him, hated and persecuted by his own nation. And who can estimate what passed through her soul as she stood there at the cross? She had experienced so much privilege, But she had also endured so much sorrow. And as Mary stood there around the cross, oh, how the conclusion of that sorrow must have come to an end. As she sees all that her son is going through. Aware all around that these crowds are mocking him. He's my son. But they're all jeering him. They want to spit on him. They want to have a piece of him and abuse him. She's there as she looks into his eyes and sees the pain on his face. And she was no doubt aware of the activities of the soldiers just a few feet away from her. As they work out what to do with the tunic in verses 23 and verses 24. So you can sometimes wonder, why has why is John included that piece of data? Is it because it was mentioned in the Old Testament? Yeah, for sure. But it's not just that. See, for a mom, one of the things a mom would do is when her son was 13 and coming of age, she would sew him personally a tunic. 
and then presented to us. It's almost like a graduation gift. It's like 18 is for us. Here, this is yours now. You're becoming a man. And so what would it have felt like for her to stand there and see that tunic, which I made for you, then I'll throwing dice over to see who's going to have it. She has endured great privilege, but she has also endured great sorrow. She would have been aware of the mocking in the crowd, aware of the pain that her son was in, and aware of the activities of the soldiers just a few feet away from her. But what is most captivating about this scene, what's most incredible about this scene, is that Jesus was totally aware of her. Because this was his mum. And as Jesus opened his eyes, as he hung on a cross and saw his mother, he was filled with the compassion. Because this is my mum. This is the woman who fed me. This is the woman who cared for me. This is the woman who looked after me all my life. This is a woman who loved me throughout my child years and my teen years and my 20s. This is my mum. His mum that he had sought to honour all of his life and would have done so with perfection. His mum who he loved all his life and would have done so with perfection. And so as he looks at her, he looks on her with great compassion. Compassion towards her grief. Aware of what she must be feeling in this moment. Aware of all that she must have been experiencing as she saw him hanging, naked, bloodied on a cross. And compassion also on her future. See, it would appear that around 13, 14 years old to Jesus, Joseph, his dad, died. There wasn't a welfare state. There wasn't other people stepping in to care for mums then. It would be the responsibility of the eldest son to always care for his mum until her dying day. But as Jesus hangs on the cross, he knows, I'm gone. I, I can't. And Jesus knows she's thinking that. He's aware of her grief. He's aware of her fears. And so he addresses her and cares for her with these incredible words of compassion. Look at verse 26 again. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now the phrase woman, if you call a lady a woman in our culture, call your mum a woman, you're going to get slapped. You call your mum a woman in this culture, and she would embrace you. Because the phrase woman is filled with affection and grace and honor. To call your mom woman was in effect saying, I love you. I'm yours. And so woman, looking at her and looking at John, woman, behold your son. He's caring for her. In a moment where you could understand that he would be somewhat distracted. 
with all the pain that he is in. He looks down at his mum and he wants to care for her. So woman, mum, I love you. Behold your son, John. He'll care for you in your grief. And he will care for you in your old age. So mum, look now. This is your son now. My friend, my disciple, John. That's not the only words of compassion he speaks. Incredible and breathtaking though are. You also see number two is the Savior's compassion for his disciple. And this too is staggering because the last time John had seen Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that didn't go well for John. The last time he had seen Jesus was not a good moment for John. As Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14 tells us that Jesus was greatly distressed of soul. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He started to peer into the cup of God's wrath. He knew what was coming. And it said he was greatly distressed of soul and he even stumbled. He fell to his face because in his humanity he was totally overwhelmed with what was about to come. And so he positions his three disciples, John and Peter and James, just a little further in into the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, just stay here and please watch and pray. For a storm is coming. Please watch and pray for me. Two times, as Jesus stands in the Garden of Gethsemane himself, crying out to the Father for grace, he returns to his disciples for encouragement, and three times his disciples are asleep. They can't even stay awake for this. And John's aware, I was one of them. I didn't get it, Lord. I I didn't get all that was going to take place. I just fell asleep on you. And the last time John had seen Jesus, he said, you know, prior to Jesus' arrest, he said, Jesus, I'll never leave you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave your side. Whatever happens, I'm with you. And Jesus says to him and all the other guys, listen, you won't. You won't remain. And John said, I will. I'm going to stay. And as Jesus is arrested and a band of soldiers turn up for him outside the Garden of Gethsemane, John and the 11 disciples desert and flee from him just as Jesus has said he would. And so John, his beloved disciple, that was his last experience with Jesus, falling asleep twice in the Garden of Gethsemane and as soon as Jesus is arrested, feeling afraid and running for his own life. Imagine the torment he must have been in. Should I go to the cross? Should I go see him? What will he say? Maybe I should just keep out of the way. I abandoned him. I left him. Look at him now. John was meant to be Jesus' best friend. And yet as one commentator writes, but love for Jesus could not keep John from Calvary. John was his best friend. And he knew he'd blown it with Jesus, but he could not keep away when his best friend is dying. And so he goes to see Jesus, concerned. What is he going to hear from him? 
And yet what we discover then is a wonderful scene of compassion, isn't it? Because as the Savior sees John, now with that background in your mind as he encounters this friend, what does he do? He doesn't look on John with disgust or anger or rebuke. He doesn't say, how dare you do that? I've given you my life. I've walked with you for three years. How dare you leave me? He just says this, verse 27. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. You know what those words are, my friends, are incredible words of compassion. Because John would have known the Savior's love for his mom. John was his best friend. And so he would have been there, no doubt, when Jesus was honoring his mum and talking about his mum, talking about his love for his mum. John would have knew, known only too well Jesus' love for his mum. And so this would have been deeply honoring for John as he realizes, me? You want me to look after your mum? Jesus, just last night I left you. I, I abandoned you. I ran from you. You want me to look after your mum? The woman that maybe you love the most in all the world in a humanly way. That would have been deeply honoring for John. But what it also would have communicated to John is simply this. John, it's okay. I forgive you. I love you. So, so woman, behold your son. And John, I forgive you. Look after my mom. Look after her. Behold your mother. Is this not an incredible scene of compassion? This is our king. This is the one we follow. This is our saviour and Lord. What an incredible scene of compassion this all is. And my friends, 2,000 years on, this house echoes for us today. It makes a difference to us today. Martin Luther used to talk about how the word of God, it has hands, it, it, it grabs us. It has feet, it runs after us. It has a mouth, it speaks to us. The word of God is alive and active. It's not just history that we read and marvel at. It's history that comes alive as we realize it communicates in the present as well. And it does. 2,000 years on, these words echo for us today. Well, then what do they say? Well, they say two things. Here's the first. What they say is, number one, there's always grace when we come back to the cross. There is always grace when we return to Calvary. See, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then thanks for coming. You sincerely have my deepest respect for being in a church as you seek to work out, do I believe this? Do I not? Am I interested in this? Am I not? And I want to encourage you, these words speak to you. Because John 3.16, a chapter just a few prior to this moment, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the story of the entirety of this book. 
It's the greatest rescue mission ever told. Because right at the start of the book, you see God making us. Literally knitting us together in our mother's womb, creating us to find our identity and our purpose and our joy in Him. But then by the time we get to Genesis 3, we see mankind not interested in Him, but interested in the creation instead. I'll take this. I'll exchange the creator for the created. And sin comes into the world, and because of sin, this world is screwed up. You only have to read the papers to realize this is a messed up, broken down place. The truth is we're pretty messed up and broken down people as well. We're cut off from God in our sin. We're unable to get back to that which he had made us for. And one day as the creator, we will all have to give an account before him for how we have lived our lives. And the Bible is clear. Man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And where we are found in sin, rejection of him, we will be an object of his wrath for all eternity. Because he's holy. He's totally perfect in every way. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told, which is what Easter is all about. And it's about the coming of one who is totally perfect in every way and then died on the cross as our substitute, taking on the sin that we had earned. He became sin for us. And the great exchange became possible. He would take our sin and through putting our faith in him, we would receive his righteousness. So that as the father looks at us, he sees us perfect like his son. And so when we stand before the Father on that day, and when we stand before him and give an account, he will say, we will hear, welcome home, child. Because he sees us through the righteousness of his Son. That is the good news of salvation. That is the good news of Easter. And that's what Jesus Christ was doing for you right here as he spoke these words. My friends, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do it before you go home today. Because you will then understand what you were really made for. You'll be forgiven of your sin and redeemed and reconciled to God the Father, knowing that heaven is your home as he washes you clean and he clothes you in the righteousness of his Son. That is the joy of salvation and that is what he's done for you. Whoever you are and whatever you've done, there is always grace when we come back to the cross. But that truth isn't just for unbelievers, is it? It's for believers as well. Because this reality that there's always grace when we come back to the cross is important for us as well, isn't it? Why? Well, because prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, maybe you're here today and in reality, you're a Christian but you're a prodigal. You love the Lord and you remember loving the Lord. You opened one eye and the world looked pretty good. And so you've run after the world. And the world sparkles around you and you've decided, I'm going I'm to give myself to this. Maybe it hasn't been as deliberate as that, but right now this just looks great. I'm going to live here in this world because this looks awesome. And I'm not even sure where I'm at with God. Maybe that's your story. You've run away from the Lord. 
You've sought to immerse yourself in the world. Or maybe you've just got distracted. And the busyness that your life throws at you, somewhere along the line, as you hear these words, you realize, where have I gone from this? Where have I gone from him? I'm just not amazed by him in a way I once was. Why? Well, my friends, the reason why is because we've moved away from the cross. We've moved away from Jesus. We've moved away from who he is. But here's the good news. When John came back to the Savior on this day, and when he came back to the foot of the cross, even despite his earlier failings, his earlier mess-ups, he doesn't receive disgust or anger or rebuke from the Savior, no. He receives care and grace and compassion and mercy. And because of the cross, my friends, so will you. Because this is what he's like. He loves us. There's always grace when we come back to the cross. And so as Arthur Pink says, cease then from your wanderings and your distractions and return at once to Christ. And he will greet you not with a rebuke, but with a word of welcome and cheer. Isn't that wonderful? There's always grace when we come back. So if you've been away, come back. Come back home to him. He's all that really matters, all that ever will. And when you return, you will receive his grace again and be amazed again. That's not all we learn for today. Number two, what we also learn is for us as Christians... Because of the cross, his grace will never leave us. <laughs> and what glorious truth this is. See, at the foot of the cross, Mary was compassionately and specifically cared for by Jesus. Because she's his family. Of course he cares for her, because that's his mom. And so as she comes to Jesus on this last day, as he dies in her place, He compassionately and specifically cares for her because she is his family. Well, my friends, 2,000 years on, we too can have absolute confidence that the Savior will compassionately and specifically care for us as well. How can we be so sure? Well, because because of the cross, through the cross, you and I have become family too. See, Mark chapter 3, as Jesus sits with a crowd of people around him, he is interrupted by a man who wants to tell him that his mother and his brothers are looking for him, and he replies with the following. He says this in verse 33 of chapter 3, he says, But who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a happy discovery, don't you think? Who are his family? Well, not only the bloodline of Mary, more than that. All those who put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior, you go on to become his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And so in the same way, 
He looked on at Mary with care and compassion. He looks on at you with care and compassion. Because you're family too. You know, maybe you're here today and you're walking through a trial. Given the numbers in the room, odds are on, there will be some. And for others of you, you'll probably start a trial today or tomorrow that you are unexpected. Sure sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Maybe a trial with health. You're fine one minute, and all of a sudden, you're not fine at all. Maybe a doctor's appointment that didn't go too well. Maybe a hospital appointment that didn't go as you were expecting. Maybe you're actually walking through something right now in a health perspective that for you is a sincere trial. Maybe a work trial, a job that you've been going for, that you've been training for, that you can never seem to get. Or a job that you've got, and now you're wondering, how on earth am I going to manage this job? Or a job that you've just lost, and you're wondering how you're going to feed your family. Or maybe that is the trial. Family. Maybe you're walking through a trial in your marriage. Maybe you're walking through a trial with your kids. And the phrase, it wasn't supposed to be like this, starts to come into your mind as you seek to parent that child. Or maybe in your single years, maybe for you, in this present season, that is a trial. Or maybe friendships, maybe you feel disconnected, you feel alone, you're just not sure where you can really plug in. My friends, I have really good news for you. I believe it's something this text wants you to know. It's simply this. That in the same way Jesus' compassionate gaze was on Mary at Calvary, so too his gaze is now on you today. Because you're family. You are his brothers and his sisters and his mothers. He cares for you. He's bothered about you. And so throughout the journeys of our lives, there is always one to whom we can look, isn't there? One who spins the galaxies. One who can find and carry all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. One who can mark off the heavens with a span of his hand. One who can take all the hills and the mountain ranges of the world and put them in scales in a balance One who can look at all the nations of the globe and see that they are merely like dust on a scale before him. One who spins the galaxies, who names the stars, who sustains the stars so that not one is missing. Throughout the journeys of our lives, there is one who is truly great to whom we can look. But the good news of this text is that that one to whom we can look is looking He's looking back. Just like he did at his mum. He's looking at you. Because you're family. My friends, this really is an incredible scene of compassion. When Jesus cries out, Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. We shouldn't skip across that as if to say, Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Now, this is an incredible scene of compassion. And it's a scene that still echoes on to this day. 
My friends, there is always grace when we come back to the cross. When we come back to Jesus, he's never turning us away at the door, irritated or angry. Where have you been? Oh, he's there. Welcome back. I've been waiting for you. Come home. There's always grace when we come back to the cross. And because of the cross, that grace will never leave us. And so in him, may we all find a sweet peace. As we get to prepare for Easter, as we come next Friday and Sunday prepared to gather again around Calvary and stand in awe of him, my friends, would we be a grateful people? Because there's always grace when we come back to the cross. And would we be a comforted people? Because his compassionate gaze is on you and in him. May we always find then a sweet peace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word really is alive. It has hands, it lays hold of us. It has feet, it runs after it. It has words, it speaks to us. And Lord, I thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you have spoken to us today. You've affected us in our souls. You've affected us in who we are. And so, Lord, even now as we close in song, would we be freshly amazed at all, not only that you have done for us, but all that means for us today still. You hold us in your hands. You are the great one of Calvary who gazed at his mom with compassion while you bled there but now seated at the right hand of the Father, still has that same gaze towards his family. So would we always relax in you, Lord? Would we always find comfort in you? For in you is a sweet peace. In Jesus' name.